0: This is The Shift Podcast.
1: Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, exactly the story about the Skymaster plane that goes missing. It's an amazing documentary. Check it out and listen to this. It'll hook you. You're going to want to see it. Is Pluto a planet? Scientists are debating this all over again. Greg Fish helps us understand all of the misunderstandings about space. What is a big rock? What's a planet? What's a moon? Plus, do we even understand what planets are in space? There's disagreements on what a planet actually is wild two la police officers have been fired for their job from ditching a robbery it was in progress to play some pokemon plus sir christopher gilbert's live in tokyo with some incredible and very dumb stories guaranteed to lighten your day and question humanity
2: this is the shift podcast welcome to the international dispatch from our world citizen Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. I know, it's confusing. He's from
1: New Zealand, then he lived in Canada, but now he's in Tokyo. Uh, But he's here on the program to take us on a little tour around the world. Chris, how are you? How's Tokyo?
2: Tokyo is great. Um, I mean, I'm not going to see Tokyo for much longer because I've got bloody scaffolding going up around my building for three months tomorrow. And in oh. uh, Tokyo, we've got these beautiful winter blue skies every day. It's just bluebird every day for months and months. And my uh, apartment building owner was like, no, no, it's not for you. And he's going to put scaffolding up around my building. I don't know what they're doing. I think they're going to like replace the tiling on the balcony or something. But no, I'm great. I also did um, my osoji uh, around the New Year's in Japan. People do lots of cleaning. They do this soji. They clean their apartment. And so... I spent three full days scrubbing all of those places you tried mine to, you know, purposely forget about during the year. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's me. I mean, I was scaffolding and cleaning. It's not very exciting, but, you know, it, it's life.
1: That is very much life that is happening for you. That's true. That's yeah. co- true right there. All right. Yeah. Well, um, here we are, a little tour of the uh, of the world with the International Dispatch. Shall we go on a trip?
2: Yeah, okay, let's go on a trip. Uh, let's go on a trip to Turkey. Uh, one of my favorite countries, uh, Turkey, because always something interesting happening in Turkey. Snowboarding was invented in Turkey. I went to Turkey a few years ago, spent like a month or two there. Awesome, awesome place. And uh, quite ingenuitive people, I would say. Um, you know, for example, cows. Lots of cows in Turkey. Your cows, you're know, not cows. so happy. Yeah. Yeah, the at cows. They're not so happy though, because you know they're indoors, especially during winter. It's quite cold, and it snows a lot there. And you know, so they become unhappy. They don't produce, you know, as much milk. Mm. You know, maybe they don't live as long. So what do you do? You make them happy. You cheer them up. You play them some classical music, but that doesn't work. So they're still a little bit down in the dumps. So you know what? Why don't you just strap on a virtual reality helmet onto their onto their noggin? Show them something nice in the world. Show them like the Windows, <laughs> the Windows XP default uh, desktop background, All and right. uh, and they'll they'll perk right up. And that's exactly what happened. Is that um, I I love it because this story is from the Sun. uk, that reputable organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the Sun it reads: the mood tricks cows cooped up for winter are fitted with virtual reality goggles so they think they're outside, and uh, continues um That's kind of they funny. look at a, a summer field and uh the bamboozled bovines appear to be happier and producing more milk um See? so there you go you know wonder yeah. if they can do that well, to what, all what those chickens that, that are
1: in a chicken coop i think that would be a great thing for them to do at least uh, let them feel like they're outside i'd also feel like i want to play this uh
2: you played a cow sound yeah, you just have that handy at all times. just the cow sound. How often do you yeah, use the well, cow careful. sound?
1: Uh, not very often, but I mean, hey, depends on where we go, right? Like sometimes uh, you just you need sounds. <laughs>
2: Dear God. Oh, what is this? I love it. Okay, I'm I'm not gonna get distracted from my cow story by by your by your hooting. Um, so <laughs> these. But first of all, chickens, not a bad idea, but you wouldn't be able to put, you might have to put like little um, like little monocles on them, like virtual reality, because their eyes are quite small, right? And they're on the sides mm-hmm. of the head. Like these cows have full on VR goggles strapped to their faces so they, they don't see the barn and feel sad. They see the field and the sunshine. Um, chickens might need like little monocles, you know, um, with a little gold <laughs> chain going around their neck like an old lady. Um, but you know, some people i be like, oh, this is terrifying, Ooh. you know, like the cows are in the matrix and it's going to happen to us <laughs> the you cows know, gonna... are in the
1: matrix. As long as Neil comes,
2: it does raise a philosophical question though. Is like, cause cows, you know, love a cow, they're beautiful, but they're not so smart. Like nope. what is reality? You know, like if the cows are happier and they're looking at the field every day, and, and they, they start producing more milk and they're, and they're just happier cows, does it really matter that they're not really in the field? Does it? Mm-hmm. That's my question. Like, if the cows are happy, the cows are happy, right?
1: The cows are happy. I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think back to those uh, birds, like those birds of prey, the ones that they land on your arm and they put the little hood over their eyeballs. I imagine it yes. looking like that, right? Like, and it's got a little screen inside. And if it makes the, I mean, chickens, I mean, some of the deplorable conditions chickens are raised in, if that made them feel like they were outside give the poor chickens a little vr helmet
2: i love it you know and i i I honestly think that even if um uh they don't produce more milk and you know it's not more productive for the farm just make the cows happy you know just Mm strap some strap some maybe i'll be happier if i was in vr all the time you know i could be anywhere
1: although i would like to just acknowledge that uh it is dangerous, if you've seen anything online in in videos, especially on TikTok, would be when people forget they're wearing virtual reality helmets and they start running around the room and then they run into things. This could be problematic for the cows.
2: Um, Can I just also give a tip um, that uh, please do not bust out the VR helmet when you have friends around at your house. Um, I was at a dinner party one time And everyone was like, oh, we have a VR goggles. And I'm like, oh, cool. And they're like, do you want to try it? And I'm like, not really. I've been drinking and it's going to make me throw up. Um, But it's it's not so bad to do it. It's more about like the four people sitting around a table just watching one person not be able to see and just randomly gesticulate with their arms and legs. It's Mm -hmm. not like the most, you know, the best idea of fun it's very fun if you're in the vr goggles but like outside of it you know everyone's just watching you stand there so um yeah not 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 for the not for the dinner parties guys save it for the cows 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 are the the future of vr not dinner parties
1: (laughs) all right so christopher gilbert the international dispatch taking us on a tour of the world Where next
2: uh la uh los angeles um lapd um Uh, is the police department of los angeles a lot of cops in la apparently not so many snorlaxes uh so when you find a snorlax you've got to grab it um lapd officers uh were fired this is uh four years ago but i think they petitioned and uh they appealed and it the the ruling really came out recently it was made public recently but they were fired for ignoring an ongoing robbery to catch a snorlax in pokemon go uh snorlax you probably might not know by name but you should know by uh you know image is quite you know as the big fat one with the big totoro belly that's lying on its back snoring all the time um these cops their names are louis lozano and eric mitchell great name for an la cop eric mitchell uh they're now former police officers of la uh they filed a petition against la last week for being fired in 2017 i don't know why they waited four years um but they were found to have ignored an ongoing robbery call to attempt to catch a Snorlax, Snorlax in the mobile phone game Pokemon Go. Um, here is actually kind of what happened. Uh, there, there was an in-car recording of the officers. Um, there was an ongoing robbery. Uh, someone in, you know, comms put out the... the psh- uh, calling all units calling all units like one of those things um mm-hmm. i think it was sergeant Gomez that did that and then called for backup uh the in-car recording the cop shows that the cops heard the call they even discussed whether or not to respond and assist um lapd captain da- davenport with the robbery situation further reviews of the recordings uh showed that the detectives um, oh, so, detectives found that the two officers were playing Pokemon Go. They were pursuing a Snorlax on 46 and in laymarked instead of doing their jobs. Um, they also, the story says, reportedly spotted a to- 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 tick. To- uh, some kind of Pokemon, uh, which they did successfully capture. I don't think they got the Snorlax. Um, the unlike Snorlax. the Sars-ticks.
1: lost a job,
2: uh, no Snorlax. Uh, just, just very quickly, they were fired uh, all, for six on six grounds. Uh, the first is failing to respond to the robbery call Two, uh, making misleading statements to their Sergeant failing to respond over the radio. When their unit was called failing to handle an assigned radio cord a call making false statements uh, during the investigation. And uh, the sixth one is, uh, you know, playing Pokemon go while on patrol, which is not really what you should be doing. If you're uh, on the beat, you know, you shouldn't be driving around town and, and your, and your woo woo. <laughs> You know, chasing Pikachu's wee should be chasing robbers, <laughs> bad guys.
1: <laughs> uh, Ryan, do you know what that other character? What Chris was trying desperately to pronounce. I, I, you know what I that one was right, called?
2: Right Can you say? It? Do, do your pronunciation? Yeah, yeah I, just, I want to hear you do it again. That's all okay. I want. I want to hear you Oh, uh, that's again. not. That, wait, wait. No, you two obviously know, and you're being mean by <laughs> no, making no, me say no, it no, again. No, I don't. I know. Honestly, I have no idea. I, I only got. Yeah, into you Pokemon both sound innocent. Just do it one more mm-hmm. thing. Don't two- they're three- gonna, three- two- gonna two- suck you in, together. Chris. Don't do it. Uh, I know. Uh, you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna fall for it. It's uh to tok to- to- tik. To- 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 I believe you're talking about tokapec No, it's T-O-G-E- T O G E T I C. Oh to- yeah, tokapec Yeah. Oh. Oh to-
1: that's to- tick. what it to- is. Togetic.
2: Yeah, Togetic. Right. Yeah, it's like a weird kind of lanky. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know it evolves from the little egg boy and then it goes into that and then it's Togekiss. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. I would uh, like to um, just for everyone who just tuned in to the shift right now, I would like to let you know that we're okay. And everyone's fine. Uh, There's just trying to figure out pronunciation of a creature that doesn't even exist uh, in the real oh. world at all.
2: Oh, oh no, this one's it. really cute. I remember this one because he's a little egg boy that becomes a staple of the show alongside Pikachu, yeah. right? And, cool. and they're carrying him along in a little and a little blankie. He's like Togedemaru. Oh yeah, okay, I know this one. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, I'm looking at a picture. I'm on the radio, but I'm looking at a picture. So if anyone okay. wants to know, we're talking about the Pokemon. So.
1: All right, Pokemon. There you go, policeman and Pokemon. And if you ever wondered how to pronounce it, now you know. Oh my goodness, Sir Christopher Gilbert, live from Tokyo, the International Dispatch. Thanks for being here, buddy. You look fantastic.
2: Thanks, mate. I'm twelve. I haven't drunk any alcohol for January. It's my news resolution: no alcohol. So I feel fresh, and my skin is glowing. And I appreciate the compliment. And I'll talk to you guys next week.
1: How smashed are you going to be on February first?
2: uh well well you know why don't i call in and, and you can find out <laughs> yes this is a nice. good
1: plan sir christopher gilbert thanks buddy great to see you appreciate it
2: all right see you guys this is the shift podcast
1: Many Canadians would probably find it hard to believe that there are so many stories of things never resolved in Canada. I think I was pretty surprised by it as well. And it's and we're not talking about the Leafs not winning the cup in decades. Like we're talking real people gone missing, things gone missing kind of stories. Well, there's a new documentary out, uh, which is great. Uh, It's the unsolved mystery of Skymaster Flight 2469. Um, And so this is the story of an airplane that just vanished. It was about 1950. The filmmaker of this is Andrew Gregg. He joins me now to talk about it. Hey, Andrew.
0: Hey, hi. How are you? Thanks I'm wonderful, thank you. On.
1: Yeah. So, okay. You're a filmmaker. This is what you do. You present stories mm. and tell stories, but I can't help but wonder when you go into a when you go into a thing like this, do you expect to find out more info? I feel like it's I maybe this is my bias, Andrew. You know those paranormal shows where They're all exactly the same and they go into the haunted house and they hear a bump in the night, but they never resolve anything. And then the morning comes and the show's over. I always find with these unsolved uh, pieces, you know, there's lots we can learn about them. But some people really want you to find that plane by the end of the documentary.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always it's something that we had to think about when we, we started this project about four years ago um and i think originally we we thought okay we're going to do our best to find it we're going to be out with the people that are still searching for it and we're going to put all the clues together but it became pretty obvious that there's a reason this airplane has been missing for now going on 72 years and um we decided that um what we wanted to do was bring a story that's largely been forgotten by the public back into the public eye And we also wanted to get it back out there to try to bring closure to all the families of the 44 people that were on board this airplane that went missing with it to try to bring closure to all these families that have been waiting for more than seven decades for answers.
1: So how did you bump into it? I mean, this is not a very well-known story, at least by today's generation. I suppose if you're around in 1950, you remember that we have a lot of shift head audio or audience members that are that, are, that were around back then, but really a lot of the people were really young kids and whatnot. So how did you find it?
0: I was, uh, I had made another film in the Yukon, um, another archeological film, and I was back up uh, at a film festival in Whitehorse in 2018. So I went to visit my archeology span friends and I saw on a shelf, there was this crumpled up uh, pieces of what looked like an airplane. And I said, what's that from? And, and the archaeologist said, oh, we found that last summer in the bush. We thought it was the missing Skymaster boat, but it wasn't. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, what missing Skymaster? And that's what started it. When I heard that uh, the basic story is that on January 26, 1950, um, a U.S. Air Force C-54 Skymaster. And for the older people in your audience, that's the military version of a DC-4. It's a four-engine plane. It's big got big wingspan big tail um it took off from anchorage with 44 people on board including crew for an eight and a half hour flight to great falls montana where everybody on the plane would disperse and go home uh, in the lower 48 states um this is pre-radar so the flight crew checked into radio outposts set at every 100 miles on the ground so there were several from anchorage to the yukon border they checked in at the first one inside the Yukon uh, at a little place called Snag, which is now abandoned. And um, they were supposed to check in a half hour later at another outpost called Asiak, but they never did. And to this day, not a rivet from that plane or not anything from any of the people that has ever been found.
1: So that must be hard. I mean, with radar, that is, a uh, well, I guess it's two-dimensional coverage all the way around on a radius on the ground. When you're talking about waypoints like that in aviation, if you stray... Yeah. too far uh, away from that waypoint, there's no way of telling if you accidentally turned left or turned right. That must really be a hurdle to try to discover where this thing went.
0: Yeah, and I actually found um, a, a radio operator who was there and snagged that day. Oh, wow. um, he's still alive. He's in Ottawa, uh, Claire Fowler. Um, he's, I think he's 94 now, but he's got a great memory and he remembered that day. And But he also told us that uh, a lot of the time, this, this air highway through the sky that they were traveling on, it's called the Northwest Staging Route. And it's pretty definite in its, in its flight path. Um, but a lot of these crews from the states that were flying up were younger and weren't used to the Arctic. So in this particular case with the Skymaster, the crew was from um, uh, El Paso, Texas. Oh. And um, they had had some Arctic training, I understand, but not much. And what Claire Fowler, the radio operator, had told me is that sometimes these guys thought they were smarter than the the people at the remote radio outposts and the air traffic controllers. They would try to um, cut across the flight path as opposed to following it uh, along its normal route. And if they'd done that, moving at 200 miles an hour, let's say, they're going to be into the St. Elias Mountain Range of Klawani National Park pretty quickly. Nine of the tallest 10 peaks in North America are in that park, oh. uh, along with the largest glacier outside the poles. So if it got back in there, if that's that's probably a pretty good explanation about why it hasn't been found yet. But we don't know.
1: Wow. So, okay. So it follows the normal flight path. And if they're from Texas, here's where my brain goes. And you can help me out here. The They're from Texas. They probably don't have a lot of ice training, uh, stuff like that ice on the wings or and then so that's problematic they go down on the normal route they try to take a shortcut they don't know what's behind those clouds kablamo right. they introduce themselves to a mountain
0: that's so a good way to put it.
1: yeah is a um now do you have the weather data do you have all those things that helps you figure it out was it you know can you even tell from back then if the clouds were low they could have hit the mountain oh
0: yeah yeah they, if they, they did they have research- ice there was a search, a massive search that was done in the weeks, the three weeks following the crash or the disappearance. And um, they uh, actually have very good weather uh, records. That day wasn't too bad. Um, it uh, was cold, um, and but the ceiling was good. A uh, plane like this one wasn't pressurized. And since it was carrying passengers, it couldn't go any higher than 10,000 feet. Yeah. Just because the oxygen gets gets, you know, thinner. So that was their ceiling. There are mountains along the route that go up to 7,000 feet. Ooh. So you, you've already got to worry about those. It doesn't, you know, that 3,000 feet uh, doesn't give you a lot of room no. to maneuver. Um, but the St. Elias Mountains are way bigger than that. If it got down in there, they're, they're much taller than that. So the weather wasn't bad. But as the search, which started the next day, January 27th, as the search carried on, the weather dipped. And there was a ton of snow fell. It got so cold that several of the search planes couldn't even get their engines started. Really, and uh, four of the search planes incidentally crashed.
1: Oh no! While they
0: were, yeah, nobody was killed in those crashes. Everybody got out. But in the film, we go to the crash sites of two of those of those search planes. They're still sitting out there, um, just in the Yukon wilderness. So um, um, it it when you've got a combination of limited hours of daylight the the subarctic winter weather and snow massive amounts of snow and then uh, a technology you know 1950 aviation itself is only 47 years old mm-hmm. it went from the right flyer up to these big four engine behemoths that are you know flying from alaska to montana so there's a lot of a lot of issues when you look back at it historically a lot of issues that had to be overcome that being said most other planes that flew that route didn't have a problem Uh, so it's, it will be interesting once this wreckage is found and I've got no doubt that it will be found. It'll be interesting to see what answers, uh, are hidden with it.
1: Now there are uh, a lot of, I suppose they wouldn't have tracked things the same way the DC four or the C 54, depending on uh, which way you look at it with the Skymaster. There's a long list of these planes that crashed. There's a long list of these planes, not a long list. There's a handful of them that went missing, were never found again. So, I mean, there is this other story about a C-54 from Hawaii that had an engine failure and, you know, had to ditch in the ocean and nothing was ever found. Very similar story.
0: Yeah, well, there's three in Alaska that went down between 50 and 52. Uh, One of those was found accidentally uh, when it melted out of a glacier in 2012. It was a C-124 Globemaster and it had 53 people on it. And it was missing from 52 to 012. Um, There's two others that are still missing around Anchorage. And then there's another one that was a a DC-4 that belonged to Canadian Pacific that was flying to Tokyo from Vancouver via Anchorage. It went missing over the Gulf of Alaska. So our plane isn't the only one. There are more. Um, These other ones have come to my attention or people that are looking for them have come to my attention since we finished the film. So we're actually looking at doing more, um, but we're in early days on that. But yes, there are a lot of these. But conversely, to all these missing planes that we're talking about, the Yukon government has a database of over 500 airplane crashes in the territory. Hmm. And uh, of the over, I think it's 508, um, but of all those airplane crashes, only four remain unaccounted for. They know where all the rest of them are. So as, wi- as wild as the territory is, and as vast as it is, these things do tend to turn up, um, and this one just remains stubbornly lost. Um, which gives me, you know, this, this working theory that maybe it's up in the glacier or the mountains. It, it gives it more credence, I think.
1: Too hard, just too hard to find, right? Yeah. Um. This the, these things, Andrew. These things become a bit of a drug, right, for guys like you. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, are you worried about? Um, you know, the lack of closure on it with not being able to, I mean, you've told the story of the plane and because it's an American military plane and a Canadian story, of course, it has garnered a lot of response out of, you know, out of the folks down South. So does this, um, does this like, is this is one of those ones where you sit with and go, hmm do I fall into the, the rabbit hole of this one for the rest of my life and become that strange old man who still talks about it when you're 98 and try to figure out, got to find the plane, got to find the plane? Uh, or have you been able to just keep that pragmatic view on it?
0: Well, it, 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 I I think definitely hooked. It definitely is a, it, it does grab you. Um, I've been involved with stories Similar to this, there's nothing quite like it, but similar to this before, and they were stories that I stuck with for a very long time. Uh, Most recently, the Franklin uh, expedition, the Lost Franklin expedition. Um, But um, there's a curious thing that happened after we finished filming that I should mention, and it might help answer that question. Um, We went up to film in the summer of 2020, and we had to do the the Yukon was closed. They closed their borders to outsiders. So we had to go in and and, uh, quarantine for 14 days. Mm -hmm. An American airplane wreck hunter uh, from Phoenix somehow got around all the COVID checkpoints at the same time. Um, And then he went to southwest Yukon in the area where the plane went down and he went up a mountainside, um, um, the front range of the St. Elias Mountains. Uh, he didn't have a permit for it, so he broke several laws. Yeah. You know, and uh, But he did find uh, scraps of aluminum that are clearly from an airplane on the side of Mount Hogue in the southwest Yukon. And um, he posted pictures on his website and then left it at that. So I tried to get in touch with him. Several people tried to get in touch with him. Nothing back from him. Finally, the RCMP got involved. Man, uh, and I was told by the RCMP that he remains stubbornly uncooperative. Um, I'm not sure why, maybe it's because he did break at least three laws and one of those don't, don't admit anything moments, but, but the, the, I think right now the, the, the next step for anybody that's searching and there is a small group in the Yukon that have been searching for a long time is to get up to that site, which is really hard to get to and see if there's any serial numbers on these parts. So that's that's like you know will I be thinking about this until I'm 98 years old? I'm I I I I don't know. I, I what I'm thinking about is getting up Mount Hogue and yeah. seeing what we can find on those scraps of it, you know, to decide once because as I say, there's four four wrecks that are unaccounted for still in the Yukon, and this could be any one of those four, or it could be one that's not even in the database. We don't know, but it's aluminum, and I've checked it out with uh, aer- aircraft engineers, and they all say, "Yep, yeah, those are from an airplane."
1: This is, that's how the slippery slope starts though. You know that, right? Like
0: that's how, like the, uh, like, Oh, I think I've already gone down the slippery slope. yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> I love this story. Um, there's so many of these stories around though, for filmmakers like you that haven't really been touched yet. I mean, I'm not saying it's an extensive list of thousands, but there's a lot of stories that we really probably shouldn't forget about.
0: Yeah, there are a lot. Um, in the Yukon, there have been a lot. Um, there was a there was a small uh, steam stern wheeler that went missing on Lake LaBarge in 02, I think it was. Um, and, uh, it turned up about 10 years ago, a friend of mine found it. Um, they were searching for it for 25 years. They accidentally ended up finding it by accident. Oh. They had engine trouble in their own boat and they had a fish finder, fish finder found it.
1: No way. And
0: was, there was an intact record player still on the deck with records still in their sleeves. There, there was, everything was still there. So, you know, it, it's funny how these things turn up. I mean, there's a couple of, of mysterious airplane crashes in Lake Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one right off Picton of uh, i think it was a hurricane there's a few um there's one in lake simcoe that nobody's found there's a a bomber that was with the tuskegee airmen that's in lake huron so you know these things are there's a there's an avenger a tbm avenger off the coast of san diego um there there are a lot of these things out there and and if you look around you find that each one of them has a sort of a tribe attached to it you know people that are obsessed with it and looking for it Mm -hmm um there's a lot of Facebook pages for example that are set up uh looking for any information that anybody can give so the more I worked on this story the more of these people reached out to me and they said hey you're working on this you want to try working on this this other one you know um so so yes there are a lot out there there's a lot of things out there but I would argue With the size of the people, the size of the crew and passengers, the list, 44 people, I would argue that it remains arguably one of Canada's greatest unsolved mysteries, Mm -hmm. just for the sheer numbers of people missing in one incident.
1: Yeah, this is amazing. So, I mean, you're a filmmaker, you obviously are an absolute nerd when it comes to figuring (laughs) things out and solving things. Like, I can hear the excitement. I mean that. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, affectionately the, but I can hear the excitement when you talk about these things. What is it about telling these stories for you? I mean, Skymaster Down comes out soon, but what, what are the, what are the, what's the magic in telling these stories for you? Andrew Gregg, the filmmaker, what, what really drives you?
0: I think one of the things I'll go back to the Franklin story. And way before they found the ships, we, we went up on uh, with a, an amateur searcher in two or 1994, I think, up to King William Island. And we found um, three skulls that belonged to crewmen. We found broken pieces of metal. We found a lot of stuff. Um, no ship and no written material, but we found a lot of stuff. But the guy, the amateur ex- explorer that we were with, had a great line. He goes, you know... If only one person had walked out alive, we would have a completely different take on this story. Just mm. one person. And it's the same with the Skymaster. If only one person had gotten out, then we'd know what happened. But the fact that they all went missing means that, that those answers or those questions still need to be answered. And that's kind of what gets me. But the other part, because the Skymaster happened within the last century, there are so many people around still mourning the loss of, of those on board. I've talked to sisters, brothers, uh, sons, daughters, nephews, and nieces. It's amazing how many of these people are still out there mm-hmm. and they're all looking for closure. Yeah. Um, and, and so our our focus sort of shifted to, to telling their stories as well. And we've got several, we've got several in the film.
1: Yeah. I'd be curious about those people. I, you could probably even just do a whole documentary on how they remember Right. I mean, these are the the fact that they're unsolved is probably, you know, a little bit of fuel to the flame in their hearts. And yet in some of their houses, the way that they have, you know, photos, they keep them around just to keep those memories alive, uh, just in case one day they get an answer. That in itself would be just remarkable to be able yeah. to take a look.
0: Um, yeah. And they don't like, you know, anything that the, any of these people would have left behind at the ba- Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage that got shipped home. Yeah. You know, so there are things that do wind up coming home, but similarly for there's other wreck sites. There's a there's another wreck. Uh, it was a U.S. Coast Guard plane that went down um, just south of the Yukon border in northern BC, and some friends of mine who actually are in Skymaster down, they're wreck hunters as well from the north. The they took these two men out from the states whose father died in that crash. Oh wow! And they'd never visited the site before. So they went to the site and not only found his uh, the barrel of his favorite hunting rifle, but they found his watch. Wow. And to stand in the place to stand in the place where your loved one died and then to find things, it's, it's, I understand it's an incredibly emotional experience. And, um, um, that's if the location of the crash can be found, I know that several of these families will want to get there. They'll want to go stand there. They'll want to try to feel something. Yeah, you know, they'll want to try to feel something in the presence of, 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 of the accident scene. So, that's that's sort of like, you know, that's the dream, right? That you can help them find that closure, and and finally bring everybody home.
1: Well, and that's that's a remarkable. I mean, you you just in the listening, you've been around these things and these stories, but in the listening of what you're saying when you know and that happens to us i think as we as humans yeah and we're guilty of putting all kinds of meaning on things but there is this magical thing this magical connection some people call it god some people call it kismet uh you know fate meant to be but when you talk about a a boat that engine breaks down and it's fumbles upon uh, a wreckage right when you talk about going to a site where nobody has found you know i mean they've been there but maybe nobody. Uh, I'd ever seen that watch before, but yet they find the watch, right? You yeah. talk about meant to be, and that's where, you know, belief systems come from. And that's how magical they can be for us is when we get to feel that thing that we just can't explain. And what a gift that would be to give to those and people.
0: On, and on the other side of it, in absence of fact, people create fiction and there are conspiracy theories yeah. associated with this that are traded quite freely online. And I can tell you those things are hard on the families. Yeah, I bet. Um, some, there was somebody that claimed that they were hijacked and taken to communist China where they were held in a prison camp. There's another guy, he pops up online all the time, uh, who insists that they made it all the way to the Montana-BC border and the government brought them down on top of a mountain and then disposed of all their bodies. This stuff, like, you know, until until the facts become clear, this stuff just starts to perpetuate online. Yeah and and then they they start reaching out to the families and telling them this stuff and then the families reach out to me and I say listen you know I, I there's nothing i can say about that i i i don't know what to say about that but it seems implausible to me
1: yeah and sometimes there's it's strange isn't it life is weird like that when there is there can be peace in what we don't know um we don't know yeah. that right and yeah. um we often go about oh i need to know the answers well you know what there's can be peace in what we don't know right now because some of the stuff other people are claiming um, may yeah. not be real. This is a, uh, this is a remarkable conversation. I love it. Thank you so much Good. for spending your time, Andrew. I, um, please keep in touch. Cause I want to talk to you about all kinds of other projects you've done. So <laughs> regardless of the fact that the timing is, uh, well marketed for, you know, this new production, um, I would love to invite you back to dig into some of these other stories. So we'll do that. Um
0: anytime. Yeah, no, thanks. Man. This is time. cool.
1: All oh. right. So let's get into the business of the thing. It is Sky Master Down. January yep. 16th is the release, a release date on the documentary channel. You can catch it, but check out Sky Master Down filmmaker Nine. Andrew Gregg Nine here o'clock. with us. Nine o'clock on the shift. Nine thanks o'clock. so much, this, buddy. Appreciate this it. Sunday. yes I appreciate it. Thank It's you. exciting, isn't it? Do you get yeah. a bowl of popcorn? <laughs> Do you get excited? Do you watch it? I mean, you've seen it a million it'll times a, already.
0: It'll be a bowl of beer.
1: <laughs> a bucket
0: <laughs> it would be a bucket
1: after all this time yeah <laughs> nice thanks andrew for being here man okay thank you
2: this is the shift podcast welcome, welcome to the world of weird
3: things with greg fishy, how is Fish. life in
1: fishy how is life in california <laughs>
3: well um it's uh i i I don't know anymore after that after that last segment uh it's It's hard yeah it's uh well i mean we're we're starting our winter so it's we've had some rain it's actually been kind of nice outside for a change instead of just uh burning heat all the time
1: Mm, that's nice and you guys are hot most of the time i mean now you're back to like normal temperatures or as we like to call it summer but
3: exactly
1: Nice. We're going to space. Fish, as you like to do with worldofweirdthings.com. The conversation today, what is, what is not a planet? The debate rages on.
3: Yes, it absolutely does. Because after Pluto's demotion, a lot of scientists did not want to let the topic go. And the reasons for it aren't so much as, well, Pluto was a planet. How dare you change this on us? Because scientists change things all the time. That's kind of part of the job. But really, their argument is that Pluto was demoted for no good reason. Ah, how dare they? Exactly. How dare they? So not only was it demoted for no good reason, it may have been demoted for a very bad reason, as in the International Astronomical Union wanted to keep eight planets because people can memorize eight or nine planets. They can't memorize 20 or 30 or 50 or however no. many there actually are in the solar system according to our most updated definitions
1: really that's the reason that's the that's the secret agenda
3: well that's that's what they argue and honestly it, it is very difficult to avoid that conclusion because so let's let's kind of start from, from the beginning, here, why this debate has been brought up yet again. There's been a bunch of headlines out there that say that there's a group of scientists who wrote a paper where they're essentially arguing that Pluto should be promoted to, to become a planet, and there should actually be 150 planets in the solar system. And you'll see those headlines everywhere, and they're not true because you remember how we talked about the quantum entangled tardigrade stuff. Well, Mm -hmm. once again, this is one of those things where people wanted to make sure that you click on the title and didn't actually bother to read what that study was. It was more of a paper that was essentially arguing that we need to have a better definition of what a planet is and try to lay out, this is what we used to call a planet. This is why we used to call it that. This is why it's important to define what a planet is for astronomers. And their argument was essentially that planets are a place where very interesting chemistry happens. They are a manifestation, a certain manifestation of uh, gravity's effects over large bodies of rock and gas. So they're they're quite important, and it's very important for us to understand what isn't isn't a planet. The no- the number, the one fifty number, actually comes from a completely different statement by Philip Metzger, who is the lead author of the study, who said that if we used the old definition of a planet, the planet, the definition that was around since the dawn of astronomy, there would be 150 planets in our solar system because we would define any geologically active ball of rock as a planet, including Titan, and Io, and Europa, and Enceladus, which are all obviously moons. So they're not actually arguing there's 150 planets in the solar system. They're arguing there's maybe more like 20 or or, or hmm. thereabouts. And there's no reason for us to just say, well, there's eight planets because dot, dot, dot reasons.
1: I always thought that it was the
3: atmosphere,
1: that it needed, it was a, a floating rock in an orbit that had an atmosphere of some sort.
3: Well, that's the thing. It doesn't always have to be the case because Pluto's atmosphere actually freezes when it's furthest away from the sun. It, it gets so cold out where Pluto travels at the farthest point of its orbit that the atmosphere basically just rains down as snow. Yeah. And then when it comes goes to the sun, it warms up and the atmosphere puffs up again. And that's kind of be actually a case, the case for a lot of other rocky bodies like that that we've discovered even further out than Pluto. Uh, places like Sedna and Quaoar uh, and Makemake, all of these are provisional names so far. Um, but there's there's basically this is actually might be a common thing, just numerically speaking, for planets in the solar system. The definition that astronomers are arguing for is. It is a, essentially a ball of rock. So the, the term that they use is hydrostatic equilibrium. So essentially gravity has morphed this big pile of rock into a sphere because that's just when you hit a certain mass, that's just what happens in space. Mm-hmm. And the other part is it has to orbit the sun. And that should be it. Like, those should be the definitions of a planet. And if it's tiny, then, okay, well, it's tiny. If it's huge, then it's huge. Then it doesn't, like, it doesn't really matter what the actual size is. As long as it's a a big ball that orbits a star, it's a planet as far as they're concerned. So then the question becomes, well, what do we do if we have to now memorize 20 different planets in the solar system? And their response is, well... Who cares? Like, there's how many trillions upon trillions of stars are there? Do we me- do we go out and memorize all of them? Like, why we can't plan what we're going to define as a planet or not based on the lesson plan? Like, that's a completely different thing. On top of that, we can we already categorize planets as we have the rocky inner planets and then we have the gas giants. While we can just add a new category called dwarf planets or plutinos or Tomba objects or trans Neptunian objects, however we want to call them. So you have these. So you basically have just different categories of planets, just like we have different categories of stars. So again, by their definition, Pluto should be a planet again, uh, and an object in the asteroid belt that's kind of very similar has a very similar properties to Pluto called Ceres should be promoted to a planet once again. And we essentially just end up with about eighteen to twenty planets in our solar system. We can still memorize the eight major planets, but we know that the rest of them are planets too. That's that's essentially what they're arguing for.
1: I had no idea. Okay. I had no idea that this was actually a conversation and that everything we had learned in school about planets could be inaccurate. Now I want to talk about that because there are three very clear pieces here in language that we don't understand. Right? There is the truth, which most people say, oh, that's the truth. Well, the truth is nothing more than our understanding of what happened. Truth includes perspective, right? The truth is just something happened and here's our understanding of it. For example, the truth is, I've said this example before on the shift, little boy goes into school, into class, teacher asks the question, what colors the sky? The boy answers gray. The teacher says, no, the sky is blue. The student says, no, the sky is gray. And he walks over to the window and opens the blinds and it's a cloudy day. So the truth is the sky today is gray. And the truth is the sky is blue. Truth is perspective. And in the world of the truth, two people can be right in a conversation. Then there are facts. Facts are widely agreed to be a fact. They're an agreement. That's why planets keep changing. We make an agreement that a planet is this. Pluto's a planet. Pluto's not a planet. We agree. We disagree. And then there's accuracy. Accuracy is all of the information with no interpretation. And so we have the truth. We have facts. We have accuracy. And we often tangle those up as human beings because, well, I'm telling the truth. Yes, you're telling the truth, but you're not accurate, right? You're telling the truth of your experience, but those aren't facts. So we lose all those. And so that's my language look at what you're talking about. When you're talking about planets, in the case of the truth, people are telling the truth about whether these are planets or not because it's just their perspective about what is a planet. The facts aren't even. There's multiple sets of agreements about what is a planet. And when it comes to accuracy, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that. And I find that amazing in science which is systematic study, of planets and rocks and all these things that we, in school we built our little foam balls on a, you know, on a, uh, what do you call it, when it hangs from the, the, the thing in the crib, the, you know. Mobiles? The thing. The what? Mobile. The, the mobiles? Yeah, the mobile thing with the planets and they're all hanging there and this is the path they take around the sun and this is the big ones and these are the little ones. I find that hard to believe. It's so amazing, Greg. I had no idea that well, that's the that thing. could be the a scientist.
3: Thing. Well, that's the thing. The scientists in question also find it hard to believe that there's like now all this disagreement about what makes up a planet, just because. You know, they, they wanted to exclude Pluto. They didn't want people to have to, they wanted to stick to eight major planets. That's kind of what, what got them so, so angry. And that's what kept the debate going because they just saw it as, you know, just like you said, there's the facts. And the facts is, you know, these objects should be classified as planets because they fit our definition of what a planet should be. And just because they are not, they don't fit into the framework that, the International Astronomical Union wanted for whatever particular purpose they were kind of mislabeled. So this has a pretty significant effect, where certain funding doesn't doesn't happen, certain missions uh, to explore these objects don't happen or get lower priority. So really, that that categorization, that bureaucracy, can actually affect science. So that's that's what got them that's what got them so that makes upset, sense. and that's. And that's yeah. what got them so interested in keeping the debate going. Um, yeah. And again, it, the it money really, part it
1: really makes sense, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but then there's also the issue that you know nature is not really tidy because there are objects that kind of really straddle the line between the neat and tidy definitions that we have. So, for example, we have this idea of Now that that we've actually started looking at planets around other stars, um, there are planets that we refer to as super-Earths. So if they're three, four, five times more massive than Earth, that's actually not a huge deal. They're not very different from our world. In fact, they might actually be even more habitable because they'd have thicker atmospheres. They might have more of a nutrient exchange. They might even be better places for life than Earth. But then when you start getting into like eight to ten Earth masses then weird things start happening, and they would essentially become the seeds in the course for gas giants because their, their gravity would attract all these pockets of gas. But let's say they hit a really poor pocket of gas, and all of a sudden, they're kind of like a failed gas giant. That's entirely possible. Models predict that this will happen. We've also seen gas giants that spiral very close to their stars because of how— their orbit was set up or the jostling of different planets as the solar system was forming. And they've had all of the gas blown off. And then there's, there's this core, this very large super Earth core that's been heated to thousands of degrees. So are they super Earths or are they failed gas giants? What do we call them? We also have these things called brown dwarfs, and they're essentially kind of They're they're interpreted as failed stars, but you could also argue that they're just overgrown gas giants, and really their difference is they can actually um, have reactions with the deuterium. They're trying to start fusion. They can't. It's never going to happen, but they're still trying. So there's these these objects that kind of straddle the line that are very difficult to quantify, and then the question becomes, well, how do we... What do we deal with those? Like, how do we put these on the spectrum? How do we um, how do we define them? And science basically says, it is what it is. We're going to try our taxonomy the best that we possibly can. There will be things that kind of straddle it. We're going to do what we've always done. We're going to create a spectrum of things and file things along that spectrum. And we're going to really devote more study and attention to things that like fall outside of um, these tidy neat little boxes, because that's where we're going to discover some very interesting things about the things that actually do fit into the categories that we've created for them. So this is really what the debate about what is a planet is all about. How do we label things? How do we study things? How we, do we determine the priorities of what needs study? Okay. I guess I've
1: always been guilty of thinking that space is space and rocks are rocks and we know what everything is. that's probably me oversimplifying and when you said space is messy okay that makes sense I didn't think of that at the same time though I guess you'd think that we were so much further along when we would know what this is. I understand like if if I hated you and you we were both astro astrologists or spacey people then we would you found a planet, but I don't like you and I don't want to give you that kind of credit. I could politic around and say, no, no, that's not a planet. Uh, the Greg Fish is, it's just an asteroid. It's not a whatever. It's a moon. Now the Shane Hewitt. Now that's a planet and we could politic, right? And, and the ego would kick in. I would have imagined it was like that, not just only about, you know, politics and money and grants and, and messy attitudes, really.
3: Hey, it used to happen all the time in the 19th century. It used to happen less in the 20th century, but quite a bit as well. There's definitely uh, some theories out there that deserved more attention that they got, but they were suppressed for political reasons because certain researchers didn't want to lose face. They wanted their theories to get the money and the glory and the attention. So you know, science is done by by fallible people. By fallible people. But the idea is that we ultimately want to figure out what the actual answer is politics be damned we'll fight through them we'll try and figure out what is the actual right answer but it again one of the reasons why we are not as far along as a lot of people think is that we've only now began to really understand what is really out there because we've got telescopes like hubble now the james webb, teles- james webb telescope james is coming online where mm-hmm. we have all these tools where we now see more than just little smudges Or or a couple pixels here or there from which we can we try to derive as much as we can. We're starting to see the details. Like imagine that our conception of the universe is like this really fuzzy picture. We can sort of guess what's in the picture and, and, and try and build different models to match up and see how well we can understand what should be in the picture based on our understanding of the fundamental laws of the universe. But now that picture is starting to get clear, and we're seeing more and more and more details. And now some of them are challenging our models a little bit. Some of them require new models. And all this is great. All of this is exciting. If anything, uh, we shouldn't be lamenting this. We should be saying, "Okay, great. We have better pictures. We can do new science. We can figure out more stuff." Like that's that's really the exciting part. So that's why we're not as far along. We haven't had the technology that we do now. And I think that's actually always going to be the case. Uh, even 10,000 years from now, there's going to be, you know, a future Greg Fish and a future Shane Hewitt talking about how, well, we thought it would be farther along than this on, on, on this particular topic. But we finally have the technology to figure out this answer. That's just, that's just always going to be the case.
1: Well, and the thing about my analogy about the truth and facts and accuracy is that agreements change over time. And sometimes it just comes time to change an agreement because the agreement needs to change. And the one thing that is constant is absolutely change. Um, this is eye-opening fish. I had no idea. I would never have thought that this is actually part of the conversation. I would never have thought of us looking into space as a smudge Which totally makes sense when you think in hindsight to some of the photos that we've seen. So, it's amazing. Love it. Thanks so much for being here, buddy. Always a pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast.
1: Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.